I believe in hard work. I believe in discipline, even in love, especially in love. I believe in being on time, picking up the tab, sending flowers to someone whose mother is sick, calling my mom to check in on her cold, saying thank you to the barista who makes my latte every night. I believe that chance encounters only offer us a chance to be kind because kindness is the most importantly underrated thing in the world. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in peeling back the skin and taking a real good look at the wounds resting beneath the surface, even if it hurts and makes you want to vomit because it's so goddamn critical to understand the pain of the earth. I believe in the heaviness spreading across my chest like orange marmalade, the way my poodle shakes her butt when I come home until I kiss her. I believe in the sighs that slip through my bedroom window at three in the morning because they tell me quite desperately that the world is simply too large for solitary heartbeats. That was a little snippet of my OkCupid profile, the one that lured my husband, Anthony, into my DMs. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. So today, I thought we'd talk about something that caused a little bit of tension in my house this week, and that is interracial relationships. I actually received a question from a reader of the newsletter about how to navigate some of the issues that sprang up in her own interracial marriage, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to share how Anthony and I have done exactly that. Some of these uh, recountings were a little bit difficult and challenging to talk through with my husband, especially in the past week with Roe versus Wade. But I know that more and more uh, we are seeing interracial relationships, and I think that is a beautiful beautiful thing. And so I wanted to contribute sort of our story to that discussion. So without further ado, let's get into it. So a lot of you may have heard this story, maybe not, but Anthony dumped me about six months into our budding romance. We'd met on OkCupid, and while things were really good when they were good, they were pretty bad when they were bad. Enough to make him think it was never going to work out between us, and we might as well just cut our losses and go our separate ways. Now, obviously, his projections for our future were wrong. And I remember at the time, I wrote him a classic Joanne, several thousand word essay on why I believed we were better together than apart, but it didn't work. That said, I'd be a liar if I didn't admit that we, we definitely had some issues that we'd need to work through in order to arrive at even a modicum of stability. So prior to meeting Anthony, I'd had two significant romances, and one was, as I'm sure many of you know, my ex-husband, but the other was sort of a brief love affair, you know, the kind they make movies about, with a young man from North Carolina. Both 
filled out my understanding of what a romantic partnership entailed, what it should and shouldn't be. My first marriage in particular taught me the following important lessons. Number one, safety above all. And by safety, I am referring to both physical and mental safety. Respect. Viewing the other person as a partner and not as a pseudo child or a dependent. Boundaries. While all consuming love affairs can feel really good at the time, failure to cultivate and respect clear boundaries can cause problems down the line. Friendship. Despite the many, many problems that doomed my first marriage, I can say that I learned from my ex-husband the importance of friendship, the ability to simply let it all hang out there when necessary. My first husband was Korean American like me, and both of us went to high school in the suburbs of Chicago, and both of us graduated from the University of Illinois at Urbana. We'd gone to the same church for over a decade. It was Korean Evangelical Church of Chicago, or as we like to call it, KECC. <laughs> Therefore, I didn't really appreciate the potential issues I'd have to navigate when in a relationship with a non-Korean person until I met Ashley, the young man from North Carolina. I vividly recall the first time I'd ever seen a Confederate flag in my life, you know, other than in the textbooks at school. It was draped lazily over the back of a faded blue pickup truck parked in the middle of a very picturesque field of tall grass about a mile from Ashley's home. Two men stood in the bed of the pickup while another sat in one of those, you know, foldable lawn chairs. And I must have said something to Ashley, like something like, oh, wow, Confederate flag, real life. Because I remember Ashley kind of tossed his head and he said, oh, yeah, they're all over. As if the normalization of hanging the symbol of slavery on the back of a pickup truck would somehow reassure me. This was my very first real lesson in interracial dating. Being a Korean American dating a white man in North Carolina felt a little bit like that scene from, you know, Indiana Jones when Indy is trying to, you know, take that leap of faith across that chasm on his way towards finding the Holy Grail. Every step was fraught with uncertainty, particularly that very first one. Not only did we as a couple have to manage all the disparities in our lived experiences, I felt rather keenly the eyes of everyone around me. It would soon become this like running joke as soon as I landed at the Wilmington International Airport that I'd satisfied the one Asian in Wilmington quota. I almost never saw anyone who looked like me, except for when we went to this really small takeout restaurant right by Ashley's house called The Great Wall. <laughs> and thus, I instantly understood, implicitly, that if I saw so few Asian Americans, then those who lived there might view me as an oddity, especially when holding hands with someone who looked like them. While it was easy enough to ignore the world around us when we were cocooned inside his little cabin in the woods, we couldn't stay within the four corners of his home forever. And love is like that, you know? There's this temptation to forget everything but the feel-goods of a new affair, to breathe in only the scent of passion 
in favor of practicalities for as long as you can. That's one of the beautiful things about a passionate love affair is that feeling like you're just kind of swaddled in it and you don't have to step outside. But the truth is you eventually do. Love cannot subsist forever on the first supply of kindling. Like anything else, it requires oxygen and steady replenishment of fuel to survive, especially if there's a storm ahead. We were walking in this local shopping center holding hands when I saw a couple of older ladies staring at us, not in that sort of disinterested way that I could have probably just ignored, but with something akin to this like open-mouthed engrossment in a car crash. I let go of his hand abruptly and he looked at me curiously. And I said to him, those ladies, they're staring at us, tipping my head in their direction. And I will never, ever forget what he did. He didn't even look at them. He pulled my face towards him so that he was looking at me straight in the eyes before saying, I don't give a fuck. And then he kissed me. Ashley's brashness was, in my opinion, born out of his youth and the fact that he'd spent all 25 years of his life living inside a relatively non-diverse town. He didn't really appreciate how othering it was for me to be the quote one Asian in Wilmington, even if it was a joke. However, in addition to teaching me the role of passion in my middle-aged life, Ashley also taught me the importance of not allowing others to dictate the boundaries of my love. My fling with Ashley was short-lived, a hot burst of flame before it crackled out with a hiss. A few months later, Anthony slid into my DMs. Small things can add up to big things, and it started with silverware. I'd always been so uncomfortable with using forks and knives, particularly if there was more than one of each. Anthony navigated the dining table with the kind of confidence I had with chopsticks, but the difference was he wasn't very interested in learning how to use the ladder, whereas I, well, I sort of had to learn which fork went with which course. They still don't have chopsticks at most restaurants. Then, of course, the food would arrive, and once more, what seemed like an insignificant preference threatened to engulf me. He loved salad. I loved kimchi. He loved pasta. I loved lamian. He loved risotto. I loved bibimbap. In the beginning, I catered to not just his preferences, but the prevailing norms of American food and etiquette. I laughed until tears rolled down my face when he admitted that he would have trouble eating anything defined as, quote, bean curd. Even though I'd grown up eating tofu all my life, and he seemed to have no problem with eating milk curd or cheese. I began to dabble more in the kitchen, mostly to, you know, impress him with the culinary prowess I'd developed over nearly a decade of watching Miss Rachel Ray's 30-minute meals. I learned how to make risotto, pasta fagiole, balsamic chicken, and of course, my crowning achievement, chocolate cake. Once, I spent hours, like practically all day, preparing a traditional Korean meal, kalbitjim, Korean-style braised short ribs. It was one of my favorite dishes growing up, one that we had only on the most special of special occasions like Christmas, birthdays, graduation. 
I used my mother's recipe for the Korean barbecue marinade, which you can, by the way, find in the Korean vegan cookbook, and was so proud to serve some up on his mother's fine china, even as he used a fork and knife without any rice or kimchi. Then, a few months later, Anthony declared, I'm going vegan. I really, I just could not articulate why I felt so threatened by Anthony's declaration. It was his body, his diet that he was changing, not mine. We had multiple, I mean, multiple heated arguments about his decision, including one in the driveway of my boss's home just minutes before making our appearance at her holiday party, one where I knew there'd be very few vegan options. He reassured me that he wouldn't judge me for electing not to join him, even as he paraded before me an endless series of documentaries and articles regarding the health and environmental benefits of a plant-based diet. I explained to him that food is my love language, a language handed down to me by my grandmothers, my mother, my emos. He was unilaterally taking from me one of the main ways I could express my affection. But even as I repeated this to him, sitting in his car in the driveway of my boss's house, I knew this wasn't the entirety of why a diet change, albeit a drastic one, was making me so uncomfortable. In retrospect, I realize now that it was a combination of two things. Number one, the only vegan people I knew were white. And number two, the one asking me to join him in eliminating animal products from my diet knew so very little or showed any real interest in the cuisine I love to eat. You know how they say, you don't know what you have until you lose it? Well, I didn't realize how much my parents and my family meant to me until I left for college. The soft lilt of Korean being spoken in the family room while I studied at the dining table, the smell of tinjang sort of hovering vaguely around us at all times, the click and steam from my mother's rice cooker right before it was time to eat, the clink of steel chopsticks accompanying the tidy orchestra of dinner time at the Lee family's kitchen table. All of these things spelled the most profound sense of safety to me. Despite making multiple trips back to our, quote, Wilmette house, I realized that as I continued to traverse down a path that would move me farther and farther from home, the only safety was me. If I was to find safety no matter where I went in my life, I would have to answer the question, who am I? I majored in English and I minored in Asian American studies in college, partly in order to answer that question. I devoured books in the same way I consumed sundubuchige. <laughs> I thought maybe if I read about how other people answered this fundamental question, who am I, I could find like a good template <laughs> for starting that process for myself. Enter right, Derrida, Lassan, Sassur, Wolf, Dickinson, Eliot, Dostoevsky, and even Freud. Because I was Korean-American, I figured it made sense to dive into the literature of the diaspora, perhaps find other artists who had created rich self-portraits as I sketched my own. Enter left, Kimi Kohan, Franz Fanon, Edward Said, Chang Rei Li, David Huang, Joy Kagawa, Ondache, 
I love Ondaatje. Even as I immersed myself in critical race theory, felt my bones sort of shake and sizzle as I read about the white gaze, I also just missed my mom. The food she and my grandmothers made for me at home. I felt the absence of kimchi in the dorm's cafeteria like a splinter in my chest and nearly wept when my mom sent me a care package of kimchi-flavored kaplamyeon. I saved almost all my spare change. And you know, when you're a freshman, sophomore in college, <laughs> that's what you need to do, right? Save your spare change for weekly trips to Dorcas, just the local Korean restaurant. And I stifled a flash of rage with the cool smile my umma taught me when one of my classmates complained about the smell of the kimbap I brought to introduce them all to Korean food. I was everything that can fit inside the statement, I am my mother's daughter, including all the food I loved as a result of the person she always said I was. You are you, and you don't have to be anyone else but you. So when Anthony, who has already described himself as a functional eater, someone who eats just to prevent death basically, decided to go vegan, and implicitly asked me to do so too. I felt he was telling me the opposite. You are you, but you have to be someone other than you. Or put more pointedly, you're Korean, but you can't be Korean anymore. The fact that he was white and knew so little about what being Korean meant to me, who I defined myself to be, combined with the fact that up until that point, he'd shown so little interest in understanding how my Koreanness, that longing for kimchi, played a role in my identity, made me anxious for our future, and to be honest, deeply resentful. As always, I come back to this one mantra of my life. We are a product of our choices. Despite my deep anxiety and anger, <laughs> I'll be honest, about going vegan, I went vegan shortly after Anthony did, and I started veganizing all of my favorite Korean food, beginning with kimchi. I'll include a link in the show notes below to a YouTube video where I'm making yubu chobap, by the way, also talking about why I went vegan. But put simply, I went vegan because I figured that not doing so would spell doom for my relationship with Anthony, something he ultimately fessed up to <laughs> a few months after I'd gone vegan. He said, yeah, you're probably right. We would have broken up if you hadn't gone vegan. And I wanted to set a good example for my father, who'd recently been diagnosed with cancer. So it was really a combination of two things. I know I've gotten some heat from you know, hardcore vegans like, oh, you're a pick me vegan because the only reason you went vegan was for your boyfriend. Well, who, who cares why? Um, but the truth is it was really a combination of things. If my father hadn't been diagnosed with cancer right around that same time, I'm not sure that I'd be sitting here doing this podcast with y'all right now. There were, however... A handful of side benefits to going vegan, some that were surprising, others that were predictable. For instance, I became a much better cook <laughs> out of necessity. In 2016, uh, vegan options, they're not really as prevalent as they are today. And I'm going to tell you right now, vegan cheese tasted like plastic to me, okay? So I had to learn to cook 
or be relegated to basically french fries and wilted salads sans dressing at most meals. My love of animals. I mean, it grew exponentially. And I have to tell you, I've always loved animals. So I came in as someone who already had a great deal of affection for our cuddly furry friends. But because I was no longer shackled with cognitive dissonance, I could love them fully. Yes, I love cows, I love pigs, I love goats, and I love chickens. And I absolutely basked in knowing I no longer ate them, even while I professed to love them. I started paying way more attention to the size of my carbon footprint, something I'm ashamed to admit I was pretty indifferent to prior to going vegan. Once I had a foot on the rung of eco-friendliness, though, I grew motivated to climb up as high as I could. But perhaps the most unexpected byproduct of going vegan was that one day, while enjoying a Korean vegan meal prepared by my mother, Anthony decided to learn how to use chopsticks. I realize it's obvious, <laughs> but for those of you who are not vegan, and let me just say, if you count yourselves as among that contingent, it means a little extra something something that you've made it to this point in my podcast. I want to reiterate that when you decide to cut out animal products from your diet here in the United States, at least, you're eliminating the overwhelming majority of options available to you at restaurants, cafeterias, parties, and even family get-togethers. As a result, unless you're okay with eating basically the same five things for the rest of your life, you quickly start experimenting with other cultural cuisines. And for Anthony, what better place to start than the food his then-girlfriend was veganizing? Perhaps it was partly my openness to just going vegan in the first place that prompted him to be a little bit more open-minded about bean curd. <laughs> but I honestly don't care. I didn't bother trying to hide my joy when he described my tofu-packed tenjangjigae, fermented soybean stew, as delicious. When he scarfed down the eggplant I braised in my mother's Korean barbecue sauce in lieu of short ribs. When he marveled at a box of persimmons as I showed him how to suck out that rubied flesh just like my grandmother taught me when I was five years old. A few weeks into cutting out eggs and dairy from our diet, the last things to go, one morning in bed, he once more crowed over how much he enjoyed the meal I'd made the night before, and he joked, you're more vegan than I am, as his arms tightened around me. I rolled my eyes, guffawed, even as he continued, you're the Korean vegan. You should start a YouTube channel showing people how to make your recipes. So yes, in case you'd never heard this before, Anthony is the one who came up with the idea of what you now all know as the Korean vegan. Now, although my bibimbap and tenjangjigae are good, it couldn't solve all the problems we had in our relationship. Specifically, Anthony's growing fondness for Korean food did little to mitigate the impact of the 2016 election. Anthony and I had just hit a stride in our relationship after a bumpy first year of courtship, i.e. the breakup. <laughs> We'd settled into serious relationshiphood. We went to Italy together. We moved in together. We went vegan together. I was thus completely unready for the massive wedge that sprang to life between us literally minutes after I'd found out that Donald Trump had been elected. 
Over the next several weeks, Anthony and I battled through hours long discussions punctuated with bitch slap analogies and other pithy descriptions aimed at expressing my rage and my fear. All those memories of being called chink or gook, of being told to go back to your country, of being asked, can you see out of those eyes? They came together as a rough and ugly collage of the America I woke up to that morning. The America I knew disappeared overnight, and every single time Anthony couldn't see my pain, when he told me I was overreacting to what amounted to just four years, I felt this chasm swelling between us. Soon, it would be insurmountable. I even started to wonder whether staying with someone whose experience as a white man created such an effective blind spot to my life as an Asian woman was itself a form of racism. I remember I was sitting in the corner of our room in Philadelphia. We were in a hotel room because Anthony was running the Philadelphia Marathon. And I called my cousin and I asked her, do you think I'm being racist to myself? by staying with Anthony. I realize that the way I've described things to this point between us might make Anthony seem a little cold. And honestly, he's very logical and he's not really comfortable with strong demonstrations of emotion from himself or from others. His natural instinct is to put distance between him and anything that causes any real emotional agitation. And at first, I thought this meant that he had no feelings. But I learned, in fact, it was the exact opposite. Anthony is one of the most instinctively empathetic persons I know. He literally cannot help it because he would if he could. There is no easier way to make my husband cry than to cry yourself. And I was crying a lot those days. And I think it was that this total lack of restraint in my reaction to what he thought was not a big deal that opened his eyes to what ultimately ended up saving us. Six weeks after the election, while I was cooking up a lovely tofu stir-fry, Anthony recounted to me that he'd started crying in the middle of teaching his class. He was a music professor at Loyola University at the time. Not because Donald Trump would be our president, but because he was describing to his students how the election had affected me, how hard it was to see me cry. He repeated to me what he told his students through tears. As a white man, I can never fully understand your pain. Six months after the 2016 election, I shared my first story, one about my grandmother on Instagram. I'm not going to lie and say that we're now 100% perfect and that we never get into fights anymore. <laughs> we still get into really heated arguments over politics, my rage tweets on Roe versus Wade, why racism continues to affect me differently than it affects him. And although the absolutely perfect, and I mean perfect, sundubuchige that Anthony made for me for my birthday a couple years ago can't completely 
guard against clashes in the future. There's something profoundly healing about how he created a bunch of flashcards of common Korean words as he continues to yell, I want nosebleed or I want kopi <laughs> at random intervals around the house. For those of you who don't speak Korean, kopi means nosebleed and it sounds a lot like the Korean word for coffee or kopi. How he proclaims that bibimbap is literally one of his favorite foods of all time, how he confidently explained to me that Chipotle's vegan option is made out of tofu, babe, and I don't know why you've been avoiding it for so long when it's so good, how he watched all 16-hour-long subtitled episodes of My Mister, a Korean drama, and subsequently dubbed it one of the most extraordinary shows he'd ever seen on TV. But more importantly, the humility in Anthony's concession all the way back in 2016 that he couldn't know what he didn't know was a powerful statement of love. It breathed space into our relationship for my pain, the shape of which was totally unfamiliar to him, but one that he was willing to bend around and even protect until it grew almost as familiar to him as it was to me. It affirmed that he understood that this hurt, this sometimes inconvenient stone I'd carried around in my body my entire life was as much a part of who I am as my love of classical music and puppies. And it also underscored that who I am doesn't need to be limited by what he knew. In the end though, it merely confirmed what I knew all along that we are far better together than we are apart. So every week I invite podcast listeners and newsletter readers to submit a question about life, about love, about eating, about cooking. And this week, Nilanjana, I hope I'm pronouncing that right and I apologize if I'm not, has asked the following. Hi, Joanne. I moved to Philadelphia from India for grad school in 2015, finished and started working as a data analyst at UPenn, met the love of my life in January 2019 on OkCupid, and married him in August 2021. My husband is Irish-American, born and raised in Pennsylvania. I never thought I would meet someone as open-minded and accepting of me and my culture in Philly with a relatively small immigrant population. But most times I feel lost in his circles. I feel unseen and feel the pressure to say things to please. I am unable to connect to them as I would with a family. I have very few friends I hang out with because most are across the country or globe. And since grad school, it has been hard to find and make friends in a new country. Plus, I am an introvert in general with some social anxiety. I feel like they are his family and friends, so they only care about me so long as he does. We have talked about pursuing, quote, our social circle or, quote, my circle, but I feel torn between wanting to depend on him and be independent of him at the same time. Well, Nilanjana, first of all, I want to congratulate you on meeting the love of your life on OkCupid. <laughs> I similarly met the love of my life on that platform, and I'm always so happy to find others who met and married through the internets. In regards to your question, 
I think it's important to acknowledge that being aware of this dilemma is actually a much harder barrier to hurdle than you may realize. A lot of people, i.e. younger Joanne, believe that love is the melding of two souls into one. Though, to be honest, in my opinion, that's just a codependent relationship. I'm not a marriage counselor, but I've been to enough couples counseling sessions to know that maintaining some boundaries is critical to a successful partnership. So kudos to you for recognizing that, quote, being independent of him is in fact a worthy endeavor. Now on that score, it might be helpful to assess in what kinds of social situations you feel more at ease. I'm going to use myself as an example. I am also a classic introvert and I'm really, really shy. So I'm terrible at cocktail parties, bars, or networking sessions. Generally speaking, the more unstructured the event, the sweatier I get. And sometimes I come off as a little snooty, a little stuck up. And honestly, it's not that I don't want to talk to you. It's more that I'm scared to talk to you. I prefer sit down dinners with assigned seating. I love those. Uh, One-on-one coffee dates. I'm really good on -on one-on-one coffee dates or even 30 minute Zoom sessions while sitting on my couch. In other words, I'm much better interacting in small, intimate settings than I am in loose group events. Now, because I know this about myself, when I start to make new friends as an adult, I don't force myself to go to parties or other social events that I know will be taxing. Instead, I email someone I find interesting and ask them, hey, would you be interested in maybe like having a coffee? Or more recently, I even started asking people to Zoom with me. And I should note that thanks to the internet, some of my closest friends are those I met through Instagram and TikTok. And though I don't get to see them as often as I'd like, They help me recharge in that way that only true friends can. So I know that you're concerned about having friends across the globe or across the country. You'd be amazed how many meaningful connections you can make over a Zoom session. Another strategy is to find a social group centered around an activity that you and your husband enjoy doing together. Again, I'm going to use myself as an example here. My husband and I both enjoy long distance running, and we therefore joined a running team in Chicago, DWR. And before we knew it, we had this robust group of friends new to both of us at the same time who could geek out about running while eating the Korean vegan food I made for them. Some of them were Korean, but the overwhelming majority of them were not. But I felt seen in an entirely different but still rewarding way. And the best part was, none of them were Anthony's friends or my friends. They were truly our friends. What do you and your husband like to do together? Do you like dancing? Do you like working out? Do you like reading mystery novels? Whatever it is, double down on that activity and find others who enjoy it as much as you do. Finally, Talk openly with your husband about how he can help you. It sounds like he's a very accepting and loving partner, but explain to him that you feel a little invisible in his social circles and even with his family while also, and this is very important, while also providing him with concrete examples of how he can make you feel seen. And I think this may be some of the frustration is that maybe he wants to help you, but he doesn't quite know how. 
These can include things like hosting monthly dinner parties, inviting friends and family over for a traditional Indian meal, hosting a movie night for friends and family featuring an Indian movie, asking him to stand up for you publicly, if necessary, when you are the victim of microaggression, even by his family, finding Indian restaurants to visit together for monthly date nights, planning a trip to India so you can introduce him to your family and homeland. On that last one, taking Anthony to Korea a couple summers ago, that was eye-opening for both of us. And also it lent the sort of solidity that we needed as a couple. I also think it might be fun to explore some of the rich history of your husband's culture if he wants to. And sidebar here, in high school, I read this novel where the heroine was from Ireland and I subsequently grew obsessed (laughs) with Irish clothing, food, language, agriculture, geography, history, and even politics. So suffice it to say, there's a lot more to Ireland than leprechauns. Not only will you get to know more about the love of your life, it might help to disarm him should he feel defensive about how you feel when around his family and friends. The key is to feel on solid ground at home, to feel seen inside the safety of home where you can develop the confidence you need to overcome your social anxiety when you are away from home and when you are away from your husband. Thank you so much, Nilanjana, for submitting your question. I wish you all the very best. And I hope that the earlier segment of this podcast also answered and addressed some of the concerns you raised in your question. If you have a question and it could be about life, it could be about love, it could be about food, it could be about cooking, it could be about just anything where you want a little bit of third party objective perspective, please go ahead and submit a question to the Ask Joanne link in the show notes below. So just a few random updates and announcements. I did this really great podcast with the kimchi kids. They're actually friends with my cousin and my cousin's like, Hey, Joanne, do you think you could do this podcast for my friends? And I was like, of course. And I truly had so much fun. I very rarely now have an opportunity to surround myself with people from my neighborhood who are also Korean American. And so getting together with the owners of this beautiful, dynamic Korean restaurant in Chicago called called Perilla, which is Genyip in Korean, uh, was just amazing. And I had so much fun. I'll include a link to all of these things in the show notes below. I also did an interview with Veg News that is going to appear in their summer issue, their 2022 summer print edition. Make sure to pick up a copy of that. You can get those at your local bookstore, your local grocery store, wherever you can find print magazines. So this is a segment where I'm just going to tell you what I'm watching on TV. Uh, In case you don't know it, I'm obsessed with really good television as well as Korean dramas. And right now we have been on this kick of watching sports documentaries and docudramas. We finished Winning Time on HBO Max, which is a docudrama about the Lakers dynasty. And I got to say 10 out of 10 
I absolutely recommend this. Even if you're not really into basketball, which I'm not, I mean, other than, you know, obviously being obsessed with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, how could I not be? Um, I don't know anything about basketball. And it was actually really interesting to watch it as someone who doesn't know anything about basketball, because I didn't know. I was like, what's going to happen to Magic Johnson? Like, does he win the championship? Like, does this coach get traded? Like, I had like no idea what was happening. So it was extremely suspenseful for me. And I had to tell Anthony, no spoilers. It was really, really fun. The other show that we started watching directly after finishing up Winning Time was They Call Me Magic, which is an actual documentary about Magic Johnson. Fascinating, moving, powerful. Again, 10 out of 10. I believe that's on Apple TV. So, so good. Another thing I will include a link to in the show notes below, I did a really fun video on making what I call rice paper butterflies. These rice paper chips had gone viral on TikTok, uh, I would say several weeks ago, and I kind of like logged it in the back of my head. I got to try that, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. Everyone else was making flowers. I decided to make butterflies and they're super easy to make, uh, really fun, delicious chips or snacks. I encourage you to check it out and try it yourself. After getting about a bazillion requests for the tripod that I use to make some of my content, I recently posted a video called My Creator Story, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes below, that provides a behind the scenes peek into how I make my videos, as well as just a little bit of background on how I even became a food photographer. I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I'm not sure how that journey even started, to be honest, but it was a long journey. Now, sadly, the particular tripod that everyone was asking about is no longer available, but you can find an alternative along with a bunch of other stuff I use for making content, cooking, baking on my Amazon storefront. Parting thoughts. So this is what I wrote on the OkCupid okay profile that lured Anthony into my DMs. I don't believe in soulmates or love at first sight. I don't believe it's possible to know whether you'd be compatible enough to marry someone upon laying eyes on her as she breezes through the cafe you happen to be standing in line at in order to get your boss her skinny bitch latte. I don't believe in locked eyes and locked hearts and locked bodies or that passion is the be-all end-all to life. I don't believe in destiny, and even if I did, I sure as shit wouldn't believe that it's written in the stars like some sort of alien love song. I don't believe in swooning or spooning, excessive employment of the words love or need, or speaking in metaphors like a collection of Bukowski's worst compulsions. I believe in hard work. I believe in discipline, even in love, especially in love. I believe in being on time, picking up the tab, sending flowers to someone whose mother is sick, calling my mom to check in on her cold, saying thank you to the barista who makes my latte every night. I believe that chance encounters only offer us a chance to be kind because kindness is the most importantly underrated thing in the world. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in peeling back the skin and taking a real good look at the wounds resting beneath the surface, even if it hurts and makes you want to vomit because it's so goddamn critical to understand the pain of the earth. I believe in persistence, trying again and failing and trying again and failing and trying another time, even if you're pretty sure you're going to fail because hope 
is so much more tangible a thing than Sylvia fucking Plath. I believe in the heaviness spreading across my chest like orange marmalade, the way my poodle shakes her butt when I come home until I kiss her. I believe in the sighs that slip through my bedroom window at three in the morning because they tell me quite desperately that the world is simply too large for solitary heartbeats. I stand behind almost everything I wrote back then, but I do believe in soulmates now. Not the kind that's predestined for you, like in some sort of cheesy rom-com flick where you spend your entire life searching, 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 burning money on plane tickets and psychics and dismissing potential suitors and entertaining all the wrong ones, moving heaven and earth to find that one random person who somehow just knows you love Billy Joel and red leather shoes and has been carrying the missing half of your heart all these long years and thus fits so seamlessly into your existing life that the only logical explanation was that he was tailor-made for you. Now, you see, the hard part, it isn't finding your soulmate. It's becoming one. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, it would mean so much to me if you subscribe to the Korean Vegan Podcast, if you haven't already left a rating or a comment below. Of course, if there was something particularly insightful, moving, or inspiring about this episode or any episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast, it would be so awesome if you could share this episode with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or anyone else who might also be moved by this episode. In the meantime, until next week, have a lovely, lovely day. Music